0: Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Before we kick off, this is a two-parter. In the first section of the podcast, you will hear from Father Peter McVery, yes, on the controversy surrounding who said what, when, to who, or rather, maybe who didn't, depending on what side of the fence you sit, I suppose. And more importantly, we'll focus on the difference between compassion and solidarity across Irish society as we face a wave of human misery in the shape of growing homelessness numbers. Then in the second part, Enya Kennedy joins us to talk about her experience of living in emergency accommodation, and you really need to listen, so we can get a sense of what government policy is actively doing to our citizens. Policy is actually to punish people now. And as awkward as a segue as this is, I do need to ask you for your support to help the tortoise shack keep going. We have no ads, we have no sponsors. We rely on listeners to pay it forward, keep the podcast free, and ultimately help pay our bills. We often say it's more than a podcast platform, it is activism. So if you want to get involved in activism, support it. And the easiest way to do that is to join us on Patreon. You can click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise It's in the podcast you're listening to right now. Every single cent helps. We appreciate everybody who chips in. We couldn't keep going without your support. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Please click the link. I won't delay any further. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions, of the podcast of hope, and I'm your host Rory Hearn, and I'm joined on the podcast today by Father Peter McVerry, and also by um, Enya Kennedy. And we are going to talk about eviction ban, the impacts, where it's going, and Enya. After we talk to Peter, um, Enya will give her story of being in emergency accommodation, and it is so powerful. Um, everyone, everyone needs to hear this. Um, in terms of of the impact she talks about, but we're seeing right now the scale being revealed, of as Peter himself will talk about human misery in terms of. 11,000 notices to quit issued last year, adding to the quarter, first quarter of this year, you're talking about potentially 15,000 notices to quit eviction orders issued by landlords. That's 15,000 households, thousands and thousands of children, families, individuals going to be evicted in the process of being evicted and nowhere to go. The government really, really has to reinstate the eviction ban, or there is going to be a social catastrophe unlike anything we've seen in this country. Um, before we go to Peter, I'm
0: just going to bring in Tony Groves, a producer who's got short announcements. Yeah. Just no, just a couple of things, really quickly. Obviously, thank you for all the support. Thank you for all the feedback. Uh, people love the last conversation we had last week, Rory, me and you, where we broke down. the no fault eviction ban right it was it was you know it, it wasn't it wasn't a full eviction ban if you were paying your rent and if you were anti social behaviour you could still be evicted um, the Tortoise Shack has launched, and the week that's in it, a six-part series into the Good Friday Agreement, the unfinished work of the Good Friday Agreement called Lost in Implementation. And it's hosted by Emma D'Souza. You may remember her as the person who <laughs> actually campaigned uh, to get a citizenship that wasn't supported by the British or Irish state at the time, but successfully won her case so people could have that dual identity. Uh, Emma has, has put it together, and it's out now wherever you get your podcast. So search for Lost in Implementation. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm really sorry that it's really kind of an inappropriate to come in on, on the back of what we're talking about today. But I think also Peter will appreciate the idea that the Good Friday Agreement is unfinished. The promises of it have not actually been fulfilled. Uh, so it's really, it's really good. And I'm I I, I I'm working on it, so it must be brilliant.
1: Of course it is. Of course it is. And listen, if people haven't signed already, I know many of our listeners have signed the petition um to reinstate the eviction ban. You can go over to Uplift. And also, um, Uplift are organising a town hall meeting online next Thursday evening. Um, that is the Thursday is the what of oh, is the thirteenth of April. Um, where they're inviting the public reps in Galway to come and state their position on the eviction ban, and they'll be getting people to, uh, uh who will be talking about their stories. And if you can, if you're facing eviction, um, yourself, um, or have experienced it, you can go over to Uplift.com and and the, you can fill out on the eviction map we want to map what is actually happening and going on because of course the issue is that as people are being evicted even if they go to emergency accommodation the council says we're full they're then not counted as homelessness and they're as homeless and they're becoming part of the hidden homelessness not counted um peter thanks so much for coming back on republic peter long friend of the podcast and um peter i i was thinking i was going there's been an awful amount of uh, blackguarding online and elsewhere about you over the last uh, couple of days, and I was thinking back to when we first met. I think it was possibly two thousand and six, two thousand and seven, and um, and it would have been around campaigning around social housing, the public private partnerships, and then the whole issue. Of course, that was when this whole crisis really started back in the two thousands, the period of the Celtic Tiger when governments moved away from building social housing. And then we continued, and, and I remember, I think our first time around the homelessness crisis now was in Liberty Hall. You might remember I organized a conference in 2015 on the housing and homelessness crisis, and we were calling it um, an emergency at the time. When you look back then in 2015, we really didn't know how bad it was going to get. And the fact is, we pointed it out, but they didn't listen. They ploughed on. How do you feel about it now? I think it's very uh, depressing
2: because what's happened is we abnormalized homelessness. I remember when the homeless figures reached 5,000 for the first time. It was on every newspaper's front page, on every media's news programmes, and the horror of 5,000 homeless people in this country, and Then when it reached 10,000, there was a small little column in the inside pages of papers, didn't make the headlines for more than a a few hours in the media. Uh, We have normalized this level of homelessness. I remember around that time, 2015, 2015 or maybe 2014, I gave a talk predicting a tsunami of homelessness coming down the road and the figure i mentioned was 5000 <laughs> yeah and here we are with 11000 registered homeless
0: but that doesn't count that does not people people's for sir peter peter, peter can i push in there and say that actually that that's interesting because when you said 5000 back then we used to cover many of those people that were in in, in other categories and we we've you know I some would say artfully because the big the big push was on to keep under ten thousand if you recall. You remember it was like let's keep it under ten thousand and they were removing people once they got their front, you know, own door accommodation, even if it was only for a couple of weeks. They had this do you remember do you remember that? So I so remember they, that well, yeah. Yeah, so so That's they've been at they've been they've been cooking the books, we'll say, for a number of years now, you know? Well they've limited the definition of homelessness. You're only that called
2: homeless if you're living in emergency accommodation uh, under certain categories funded by the government. So it doesn't include people so surfing. It doesn't include 5,000 like, people who have immigrants, immigrants who have permission to stay in the country, but are stuck in direct provision centers because they can't afford to move out. And it doesn't include women and children in domestic refuges who are not going to be able to go back to their home. There's an awful lot of people that it doesn't include. So the actual figure is probably double 11,000, or maybe, maybe even more. And of course, if you include uh, adults in their 20s, 30s, and even 40s who are still stuck living in their parents' accommodation because they can't afford to move we are talking about multiple of 12,000, 11,000 who are, who are actually homeless
1: yeah absolutely and in terms of just you know a couple of things i don't know if you saw it's just broken the dublin inquirer has just broken that the department of housing was aware of the notices to quit this seven thousand notices to quit um since january and yes the government claimed that it didn't know that the number of notices to quit that had been issued And it seems that essentially they also pressured the RTB not to release that information until the decision on the eviction ban had been made. And it seems to me very clearly that there was an attempt, or very they did, they avoided those numbers coming out because they knew that the public reaction would have been even stronger. And it just seems to me again that not only, because I was arguing saying, oh, they, they made their decision based on no evidence. But actually, they did make it on evidence, knowing the numbers of notices to quit that we've only found out over the last couple of weeks. Yet they still went ahead with it. Why do you think that is? I have no idea. uh, I have
2: no idea what the government were thinking. But this is the most disastrous time uh, to end the ban. Emergency homeless accommodation is packed out. There is very little spare capacity in the system. Families who become homeless were traditionally put up in hotels. The hotels are packed, Uh, and many of the hotels now, as we're entering the tourist season, are reverting back to tourists. So it was the most disastrous time uh, in which you could end the the And secondly, if they were knew they were going to end the ban, they put absolutely no measures in place during those five months to mitigate the effects of the ban. The one measure, or one of the measures they have put in place, which they announced the same time as they're lifting up the ban, was that the local authority could be offered, uh, could get first offer on the sale, sale of a house. Now, uh, why was that? And that's going to require legislation. And of course, the government have got holidays for two weeks, so there's going to be no legislation for two weeks. But that's not going to come into effect for another weeks or months either. Why did they not legislate during the five month eviction ban and have that mitigating effect ready to go when the ban was uh, was lifted? It absolutely baffles me that they would end the ban. One of the reasons they gave for ending the ban was that extending the ban would drive landlords out of the market. And I have two comments on that. Actually lifting the ban is going to drive landlords out of the market because now we're going to find a lot of people are going to overhaul. They're going to stay in after the eviction, uh, the notice to quit has expired. And that's going to frighten landlords because they're going to have to now go to the RTB. They're going to have to go to the district court. That could take 12 months. So ending the ban with no emergency accommodation in place is going to frighten landlords out of the market. And the second comment I'd have is that many landlords want to sell the house because they're actually losing money. They're losing money on renting. If they're renting for uh, 1,600 a month, they're paying 800 in that tax to the government. So they're actually making 800. But the mortgage on the property might be 1200 So they're actually losing money by renting it. And that, that is the reason why I think a lot of landlords eh, are selling up. So they, the government need to address that problem. And I mean, they're putting that off until the budget. Yeah. I know we, and cannot address, we'll address it in the budget. Much too late addressing it
0: in nine months' time. Much too late. That's the issue. But, but hang on, just, just just on that, Peter, and I, and I know Rory, you want to come in, but like even in Portugal, where they're seeing that this has happened, they've decided to do a huge sweep of, of a suite of options for people. And in those situations, they're they're saying, okay, if the landlord, if it's not viable, can the state make it viable? Now, we don't. With the worst situation we have here is 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 you know obviously. We made social housing, we made half social housing, but you know we, we can't be we can't be pushing for higher rents. We, we should be actually saying if the if the landlord can't make it viable, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't continue. so we, we the state should be stepping in and purchasing that property. But and, but also, and, also, Tony, I think the issue is we
1: know that house prices have peaked, yes, starting to fall. They're falling already in terms of existing properties, which is what landlords have. And so they're selling because they know this is when I get my investment. This is when I'll make the most amount of money from it. And I think that we need to accept that there are landlords leaving. They're going to leave no matter what to do. So essentially, we have to, this eviction ban, and of course, Ireland is an outlier in terms of Europe around the fact that a landlord can actually evict a tenant when they're selling the property. In most European countries, you can't do that. We need to accept landlords are leaving. And we have to keep tenants in their homes. I think, Peter, that in a way, this is like 30 years of housing policy coming to boiling, exploding points. That they've managed, to, they've been putting it off, you know, the 60,000 households and half in the private rental sector. That, you know, where are they going to go? Like, I, I think this is, it, it's a crisis beyond a crisis. Yeah, we come to realize now
2: that the, the primary uh, policy Uh, of the previous ministers for housing were to push everybody into the private sector and reduce the state's uh, involvement in social housing. As I've often said, 1975, this country built 8,500 council houses. In 1985, this country built 6,900 houses. And in 2015, this country built 75 council houses. So the yeah. state pulled back on building council housing, pushed everybody into the private rented sector, and if you uh, read "Rebuilding Ireland," it's it's embarrassing now. I'm sure for the minister for housing, Simon Coldney to read it, because it extols the virtues of the private sector. It makes you know, it this wonderful uh, uh, object, a wonderful objective for any developed economy to to develop the private rented sector. Everybody should be wanting the private rented sector. It's been a total disaster. Now, I support the current minister because he's done a U-turn, and he's committed to providing 9,000 new social houses every year, Uh, and I support that U-turn, and that's
0: the direction we have to go in. The state providing social and affordable housing, Peter. We have to. That's that, Absolutely, no one's arguing that, and and I, I'm glad you've said you support the minister in in that. The, the we can argue over the way it's delivered. We can argue, you know, is it is it cost effective, and are we getting bang for a book, and are should we be using, you know, uh, turnkeys, or should we actually be building ourselves? And I know Rory will, but you mentioned the minister, so we have to actually mention you've been, You've Rory said that you've been. There's been blackguarding all week. You've been there's now in the Irish Times, it's saying that you've apologized and retracted your statement. On, 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 you were told that the Taoiseach had said that he didn't, that he wasn't in favor of of lifting the eviction ban, but the minister was. You said you received clarification on that. I'd be be remiss of not, I'd be remiss not to ask you anyway, Peter, to clarify because when I read what, what you said on the Neil Prenderville show. It read to me as a, and I didn't listen back to it, it read to me as, as as we need to move on, this is distracting from the actual crisis more so than you actually saying that uh, that 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 you received a, a, a correct clarification. Can I- yeah,
2: I've withdrawn the term over overriding. I said that the Taoiseach had overridden the minister in relation to this. Man. Now, both the Taoiseach and the minister have denied that. I don't, I don't call it iron, so I'm prepared to accept their word for it that the tea shop didn't override the minister. And so I'm quite prepared to withdraw the term overriding. So uh, the term so, so, overriding so, so, so what are, so, suggests that there was a
0: conflict between Hmm. Uh, and that does not appear to be the case. So I so drawn... so so what we're saying now is is that there was unity of purpose. Whereas I spoke but, to Nessa Hurrigan of the Greens, who, who said the three men went into the room and the three men came out and said, "This is what we're doing." And 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 that was her opinion as as a member of the government parties up until she voted against them to a degree. That was her opinion. So so you you're you're of the opinion that that that's the that the tri- triumvirate. The three men went in, they made the decision, and that was the, that was the deal was done. Well, I don't know about the three men going in, but the decision was obviously
2: made at the cabinet level. And I fully accept that the minister, uh, with all the other cabinet members and the T-Shop, were unanimous in making that decision. Now, what happened prior to making that decision mm. then, is yeah. if a different matter, but I, I don't... Uh, I don't want to move on because this is a big distraction, Yeah, the only issue we now are is the human misery that's coming down the road, not just people losing their accommodation, people still in their accommodation who haven't received a notice to quit are worried sick that now they're with, they're going to receive a notice to quit, so
1: it is a nightmare scenario that we are that we are facing. And I think, I think why it is important, though, at one level, Peter, in that it's not a distraction is that, and I interpret from what you're saying there, that essentially when they made the decision that there wasn't a conflict over the decision, but prior to the decision, be that, for example, the Minister for Housing went into the meeting and said, well, I, my advice is we shouldn't uh, or we should extend the ban. And they had the discussion and then they made the conclusion that all of us together agree we actually are uh, lifting it and i and you know that that is essentially the what the expectation because the point being that they didn't put the mitigation measures in place why did the department of housing not put mitigation measures in place was it because the department of housing was working on the basis that actually the eviction ban would be extended that's my understanding and certainly the political
2: uh, um, the political uh, consent not consensus, but there were a lot of polit- politicians who were or right up to the very end believed that the eviction ban was going to be extend was going to be extended. So that would explain why there were no uh, mitigation measures taken during those five months of the of the ban. the uh, so it's a uh, but it is a distraction. I think the decision may have been made as you have suggested, at a cabinet subcommittee
0: meeting. And brought to the cabinet and everybody said Right, uh, I, I I didn't suggest it. Nessa Oregon suggested it. I just happened thinking yeah. she she's onto something when she says it. Well as I was saying it may tally with the fact that the decision was
2: actually made at a cabinet subcommittee. Uh, and uh, they was brought to the cabinet table and everybody uh ticked the box and said yes.
1: Yeah, and I and I think that the key point out of this is, as you've said, that they lifted it and without the mitigation measures in place, and also now becoming quite apparent from the Dublin Inquirer story, knowing that there was 7,000 eviction uh, notices issued in just six months, um, up to the end of 2022 and the second half of 2022. And what seems to me now, and why this is so important, is because I think in many ways that this decision makes the government untenable in the sense that what it has, what it is unleashing is, as you described, a tsunami of human misery. It knows over the next year, two years, there are tens of thousands of people going to be evicted from their homes to go- where nowhere to go to. How is a government able to stand over a decision like that?
2: Yeah, well, they're arguing that it was the best of her by the lot, where. Uh, don't accept that, as I say. I think the timing is wrong, coming into the tourist season when hotels are, are giving back their uh, their homeless populations. Uh, it was uh, it, it it was bad timing, it seems to me at the very at the very least. There is, uh, I think, the government may be hoping that all this will die down over time, uh, but I don't think it will. Because over the next few months, there's going to be a drip, drip feed of horror stories of people who have been evicted and have nowhere to go. We've already seen some of those. We've heard some of those horror stories. A lady who is due to be evicted on the same day that she is in hospital giving birth to her baby. Yeah. And another elderly man has worked all his life and said his fear now is that he will die in a homeless hospital. So there's going to be these stories are going to be coming out day after day after day for the next few months, and putting enormous pressure on the government and
0: calling into question uh, the government's uh, compassion. Just, well, sorry, Roy. Can I ask a question on on the on the services, Peter? Because the services now are are stretched to the max, and then you see the figures of you know seven thousand. You see the figures of now up to eleven thousand, and then we don't know what the last quarters be like. What is the idea? What is the kind of capacity and the morale within people providing homeless services, emergency services, and 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 what situation do they find themselves in now? Looking at this, how do you, how do the people who work with your organisation feel about this?
2: Well, it hasn't hit yet, so uh, we're still we're still in 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 drifting mode. It hasn't really impacted yet, so it's hard to know. But I think services like ours, we are full to the brim. We are doing what we can. We may be able to add another phoned-up bed, maybe in the sitting room for somebody, but we cannot uh, and absolutely cannot uh, provide uh, emergency accommodation for thousands of people, and single people who are going to be uh, they find themselves out of of their accommodation. And the biggest problem is families. You can't just put up an emergency bed or two for a family in a, in a hostel. You gotta provide them with a room which where they can uh, have privacy and that that's not going to be available. Are we going to see families sleeping in parks during the summer? Are we going to see families going to guard the stations despite the guard, their advice not to, uh, to try and find somewhere safe to stay for the night, uh, we're going to find families moving in with relatives, which may, in many cases, overcrowd the accommodation and put strains on family relationships, and therefore their presence there with the relatives uh, is not sustainable in the longer term. So we're going to find a whole series of of difficulties
1: uh, that uh, that people are facing. And, and Peter, I, I think. You know, given that the governments, they made the decision on the assumption and basis that this would just die down. It's not dying down. It's not going to. And as you explain, and I think also a lot of people are are coming together in solidarity around this, you know, Raise the Roof, Katu, you know, our own work, you know, your work, the NGOs were highlighting it. People are speaking out. The media is covering it. I don't think this is going to die down. And therefore the question I think becomes, Do you think, I think they should, reinstate the eviction ban? Do you think the government should reinstate the eviction ban?
2: I'd love to see them reinstate it, but it would be a real uh, fold fast for the government. It would be a real slap face for government. Uh, Governments don't like to admit that they were seriously wrong. Uh, And I think they will try and uh, and ride through this. Uh, Maybe... You know, it has been suggested, and I have no inside information on this, but it has been suggested that if they had extended the pound, we would have all this purore and this huge increase in homelessness in the months coming up to the local and uh, European elections. And the government wouldn't want that. I have no evidence for
0: saying that, but my conspiracy. Well, 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 well is, political, yes, po- political political. Political analysts have said that that's one of the things, but one of the other things, and I think this is crucial, is they kept saying it was an it was a winter emergency thing because what they meant was we didn't want people out exposed by the elements. And it goes to another partner. He said, "Well, actually, does that mean that it's okay when the weather's milder that it's okay to do that?" That's the follow up question that no one bloody asks. You know, because we all assumed wrongly, myself included, that this ban would be um, increased. At least I thought it was going to run into twenty twenty four, into early twenty twenty four, would have been where I thought it was going to go. But nonetheless, but, Peter, we also think... Tony, just on that the, the, the notion of a winter eviction ban comes
1: from France, where yeah. they have summers. We don't yeah. have summers here. So- no,
0: that's that's my point, Rory. We're we're literally we're, we're literally saying to people, hope for the best that the weather might pick up for you, and and it'll be all right. But but I think it's 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 really crucial. I suppose we go back to the political um stage of this, Peter. They're gone on their holidays again, uh, and and now we're sitting here, and the government, while well, they're they they have another, they have their Easter break, they've come back from St Patrick's Day, they've known this is coming, and and yes. The the agenda has seemed to be to, of this week. Uh, can we get an apology from Father Peter McFerry? Can we get uh, an apology from Owen O'Brien? There's very the, the, I, there does seem to be um, no talking to them in terms of those human interest stories. Uh, am I am I out of am I the one out of touch? Well, it's a very unfortunate that uh, my intervention
2: and Owen Brin's intervention have presented a huge distraction of the government governments love distractions when they're facing difficult and uh, and controversial decisions. And this has been a consent where they go, that's why I want to put it to bed. Uh, I want to uh,
0: to move on. Uh, and accepting and that you've done that, and accepting um, that you've done that, but, but the point being is that this is the issue now where we want to talk about. This seems to be the thing that's like, you know, the evictions themselves, are less controversial than the people who want to point out uh, what's going to happen. It seems crazy to me. Yeah, that's the uh,
2: that's uh, that's partly the media's fault. <laughs> they they love controversy as well as the government. Uh, so it's uh, yeah,
1: it's it's unfortunate, and I just want to move be- on. Look at the let's look at the real issue. Yeah, when we look at it now in terms of that, the solutions, what needs to be done right now. You know, the ban should be reinstated. You know, you're saying that politically they're unlikely to do that. I don't know. I think there's going to be massive pressure on them um, in the coming months over this and indeed into next year. Um, I, the the other issue, I think, is in terms of the Tenants-in-Situ scheme, the purchase of that, making that actually work. It's currently not working. Um, what do you think about that, like the Tenants-in-Situ scheme, and what do you think are the key solutions now? Well, I think that scheme will, will, will benefit a
2: small number of people. Uh, it depends on how the local authorities address this issue. I've heard one story of a local authority that refused to buy the property, probably not even though the landlord offered it to them, because the property had three bedrooms and the household were only entitled to two bedrooms. Now, this is not a time to start ticking boxes we have a crisis, we have an urgency. Uh, so it depends on how much of a crisis the local authorities think we're in and whether they're prepared to be, well, uh, bend the rules or be more, uh, uh, be more willing to, uh, to tolerate uh, something that isn't quite uh, the norm. We, we, this is an emergency and they, the local authorities have to step up to it. But it still will only affect a small number of people, even when the legislation is passed, when the TDs come back from their holidays. Even when it is passed, there's no obligation on the landlord to accept the offer from the local authority. And we've already heard of one landlord who refused to accept the offer on the grounds that they can get more money on the open market. And to my mind, that is despicable. They're prepared to put a household out into homelessness for an extra 30 pieces of silver and I think that is absolutely despicable but that's the reality landlords can do that if they wish to and I'm sure some of them will
0: Peter hey last question for me Rory referenced the beginning when he first met you I am I want to draw you back to the first time you were sitting in the room where I am right now and um, we, t- we spoke about the difference between solidarity and compassion if you recall uh, I put it to you now that the Irish people have an abundance of both now more than we thought uh, because we've seen those stories are starting to be told and despite the fact that politically the government looks stable I think it's going to be those ideas that that um, those stories where people tell their stories unfortunately have to share their trauma are going to make the difference and, and actually and and turn the tide on this am I naive and do you, or do you believe in still believe in compassion and solidarity like you did when we first spoke
2: but I think Irish people have an extraordinary compassion. Yes, absolutely. And we saw that Jerry cope. There was huge uh, rallying around. Do we have the same level of solidarity? I'm not sure of that. Uh, I think there are uh, hidden walls separating us. Uh, separating those who are financially comfortable from those who are poor and separating different uh, sectors of the population Uh And we see that perhaps with with travelers, you know, we are a racist society when you look at how we treat travelers. uh, So, yeah, I'm not sure that that solidarity is very strong, but the compassion certainly is is there, yes.
1: I I, I think, Peter, listen, thank you so much for giving your time and, and... I do believe that we have both compassion and solidarity. And I think our government is not representing us right now in any way, shape, or form on this decision. Um and I think that they're going to rue that uh, decision and that we will show that actually we are a country where most people want to act in solid towards solidarity with others and compassion. And we have a lot of issues to address. And you are right, there are a lot of inequalities. Um but I think that this current um decisions around the eviction ban and housing are absolutely not representative of what people want to see in this country. But listen, thank you so much for joining us on Reboot Republic and continue the great work that you do and don't listen to the blackguards, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Me included. I will say this, uh, you plugged the, the Dublin Acquire earlier, Rory, for the that great work on the on the notice acquitlet by Lois Kaplan. They also have a really great piece by Shami Malik Mian on what's happening to, as Peter rightly points out, immigrants who have being treated, who we're letting down under international protection laws. We're, we're leaving them in the streets. Some of them are sleeping on the streets on a daily basis and how they are being treated. So, you know, it, it's it uh, support local and local journalism doing great work as well. But also, you know, this is the truth of it. We have to, we have to face up the reality. There are people, 400 people left on the streets at night in breach of international law and and Ireland is kind of shrugging its shoulders. And And now we'll go to um, hear a
1: personal story, one of those ones we were talking about, the, about the experience of a mother and her son in emergency accommodation, how it was, the reality of living in a hotel for seven months, how difficult it was. And that's from Enya Kennedy, and um, I will go over to Enya now. So now we're joined by Enya Kennedy, who is a mother of three, a community and equality activist, when she's not, as she says herself, at the day job. um, She believes in human rights and dignity for all and describes herself as a compulsive DIYer and a mad Liverpool supporter, hard Anna as it is um, right now. Um, Enya is actually going to talk about Her own experience with homelessness and and dealing with services, and in particular, the issue of what is it like to be in emergency accommodation. And this is really, really important because part of the government's response, as we were talking earlier there with Peter, has been to say that, oh, well, we have emergency accommodation, as if emergency accommodation is a suitable response to evictions. Um, Enya, thanks so much for joining us on Reboot uh, Republic today. You're very welcome, Rory. Um, listen, maybe you could start with just, you know, a little bit about how, you know, what was, I suppose, your experience of homelessness and, you know, you were attending the live podcast we had and you felt you wanted to tell your story yeah. that it was important. So maybe you could just tell us.
3: Yeah, so, um, I was, rent. Well, I had been renting an apartment for many years, um, paying rent every week but the landlord just wouldn't do anything to fix it um and i it eventually got to the stage where i got the council involved to do an inspection to see if they could force him to do anything um and we ended up homeless because they condemned it and we had 20 minutes to get out it, that's literally how we ended up
1: homeless wow just 20 minutes
3: yeah, the fire officer rang me at work. Um, I was retail management. I had to come home and that was it. I had to pack a bag and get out, myself and my son.
1: Wow. How old was your son at the time?
3: He was 17.
1: 17, yeah.
3: Yeah. The oldest two had left home at that stage, but it was me and me and my son and he was studying for his leaving cert and suddenly... You're homeless.
1: Studying for his leave and cert. My God. And, and what happened then, Indian?
3: Um, Well, we were told we were getting three nights emergency accommodation over a weekend. Um, and then we had to go to the council. Um, council didn't want to do anything and they were trying to pressure us into to rent in your own place. And I was like, there is nowhere to rent. I've been trying to get out of this apartment for years. Um, and the landlord wouldn't do anything. And we'd been searched on task and asking friends and
1: putting when you say the council was trying to pressure you into rent renting something what, mm. do,
3: what were they saying? well, they kept saying that there, were, well, there was no emergency accommodation this this isn't for us um we need we we need you to, to find somewhere for yourself that like you're working you need to find somewhere
1: and just so individually how long ago was this?
3: That was 2018.
1: 2018, and they were saying... And what part of the country, not specifically... In Kilkenny. Brought, In Kilkenny. Yeah. They were saying that they had no emergency accommodation for mm-hmm. you. For you and your son. And, yeah. And were to go find something.
3: Yeah. So I said to them I was going to stay there in the council offices. Yeah. Because there was literally nowhere else for us to go. And what happened then? Um, they put it into emergency accommodation um a room in a in a basically disused building um mm. that was kind of being used at some stage for hens and stags at weekends so it was unmanned there was just nobody there there was nothing there was just a room a
1: sort of hostel type
3: kind or? of a thing but like there was no staff there or nothing the like that it was just me and my son and i think there might have been other people in another floor but I'm not sure. So then they took us out of that and they moved us into um, a hotel. Now, the hotel itself, the room, you'd be happy enough going there for a weekend. Yeah. For a couple of days, lovely hotel, lovely staff. But when you're living there, it's a completely different thing that you've got a room with two single beds, one for me, one for my 17-year-old son, um, you don't know how long you're going to be there. You've no way of cooking anything. There's no fridge. You can't store food. Um, we were given a list of rules by the county council, no visitors allowed, um, no alcohol, no this and that. And I'm not drink a drinker and like I I don't drink, but it was this whole thing that you can't have alcohol, you can't have a drink after work or anything like that. Um your room is a subject to inspection at any time. It felt like you were in prison. Yeah. Because you weren't allowed just to live your life. That because the apartment we had been living in had been condemned, and I'd ended up in emergency accommodation, that suddenly we weren't allowed to have a normal life anymore. And that I was still getting up in the morning and... Going to work, um, having to leave the hotel and go to work, and I can't even explain to because I had to wear a uniform for work what that was like, and like you think that everyone sees you nearly have a beacon on your head. Yeah. That oh, they're homeless. And that was acutely uh, a weekend. We got breakfast every day in the hotel. Um I and mean, people were like, Oh, that must be great, you have the poor big Fry. You didn't want to. Like you if you had a bit of toast and coffee, like Yeah. Because you just it was survival. Um but you just felt especially at weekends and it was acute at weekends when there were hens and stags and stuff in the hotel and they were still drunk for the night before, merry, happy, enjoying life. And there's you and your son having breakfast and quietly just disappearing back again to your room yeah, and then not being able to cook not being able to store food and it's horrendous it really really is horrendous
1: and how long were you there for?
3: seven and a half months
1: seven and a half months yeah and did you guess you're home now? yeah yeah. You did. And what do you feel? How did, how did it impact on your son? I know this must be very hard, and, you know, it's understandable if you don't want to talk about that or. To talk about. Just in terms of the impact on your son. Oh, being, it was,
3: yeah. he ended up repeating a year at school. Um, there was no way. He, he couldn't sleep. He had no space. He had no privacy. He couldn't study um the room was just really really warm all the time and when you opened the window you were opening a window to a car park um and it was just loud um he he really struggled we both struggled um especially like and we're very close and we're still very close um but like how do you how do you do that how do you study in a room With your mother, there's not even, there's no desk, there's no facility to study. Everything you own is in this room and you're trying to keep it together. You're trying to keep everything compartmentalized, but it's so hard. Yeah. And he just just didn't sleep. He just became utterly like a zombie walking around the place. And the guilt you feel as a mother as well, and like constantly looking for somewhere to rent when you're there um, and even back at that time there was nothing on daft and I had there was a woman used to come in to work from the county council especially coming up sort of the Christmas period and like the shop that I was working in Christmas is your, your really busy times sort of from October onwards um, and they would be looking to meet with me and I were going yeah I'll meet with you but I need to meet you at Either half eight in the morning, quarter past eight in the morning. I can meet you after six. But I need to be in work. I need to keep my job. I need to keep my... Like, I'm the manager of this place. I need to work. So eventually she agreed. She said she would come to me. Um, And she wanted me to get references from local politicians. <laughs> but I was like, are you serious? Like, why would a reference from a politician be any strength in getting a home. Yeah. Most of them don't like me because I have been campaigning and whatnot for about a lot of things anyway. um,
1: But that's irrespective. If you have a housing need and you're homeless. You shouldn't
3: be looking to a county councillor to find them because we all know that's not what they do. uh, No matter what they say. Um, But it was like my my uniform for her wasn't good enough either that I needed to dress up more to go to view houses. Yeah. Um, And it was this constant pressure of you're not doing this, you're not doing this. Um, and I was like, I am. So I ended up, on a, and it's definitely a piece of advice for anyone who is going through or dealing with county councils, if you ever have a phone call or a meeting with an official, follow it up by an email, confirm everything that was said, in an email, have it in writing. Don't ever let anything go, that it was just said. Follow everything up.
1: And yeah in terms of the trauma and the because you mentioned this in the um in the podcast, mm-hmm. the live podcast, that you're still traumatized by it. Yeah. Trauma leaves lifetime lifetime impacts. Maybe you could just yeah. name that a little bit.
3: I don't know. I think you like you're still like the house at the minute has had numerous issues and while you highlight them it has taken me over two years to insist on anything being fixed for fear of being evicted like there was numerous issues here with windows going to fall out and all sorts of stuff Um, but we didn't Do anything about it because we were scared that we would be evicted again, or that if you're like making sure and like there's times I triple check my bank to make sure my rent went out just in case, even though you know what's going out.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: You just triple check just to make sure that you don't miss rent payment. And there's always that not wanting to rock the boat, but actually wanting to. Really rocks the boat, but when you're when you're traumatised like that, like I'll I'll probably, I would help anyone else now, but I would still find it really hard to help myself in terms of housing.
1: Yeah, yeah. And what's your reaction to the government lifting the eviction ban?
3: I would feel it. I'm fuming. I'm fuming. We part of the time we were in homeless accommodation was Christmas 2018. Mm-hmm and that hotel we were staying in closes for a week Yeah, over Christmas that's just what they do we found out about it the morning they were closing now then they said you're still staying here Um. so we did we, ha- we, we didn't have a choice you don't have a choice and a lot of people say well you can go and do this and you can't if we'd walked out of that hotel for more than one night we lost our emergency accommodation you yeah. can't go and stay with people you can't go and stay with someone for a few days over Christmas, that's not how it works, you lose your place um, but I had emailed all of our county counsellors and said this is a choice that you lot have made you have left us in emergency accommodation where there is a hotel that's closed there was us there was other families there, there was single people there but they had everybody really spaced out so you wouldn't come across each other The hotel was in complete darkness, um, apart from a security guard who had a list of who could come in and out, and Malcolm Noonan, who is now a Green Party minister, what I would have considered a friend at that time, close friend, um, was so appalled that he invited myself and my son for Stephen's Day Dinner. And we we did it, and we agreed, and we went. And he picked us up and it was sort of like maybe 12 o'clock in the afternoon. And even at that time, he could see how derelict the place looked because it was the hotels in the middle of like um, an industrial, well, a business park. Everything was closed. Yeah. Um, We had dinner and he brought us back to darkness. Um. And he really struggled to hold back the tears that night and kept saying how wrong it was. So to see him, to see him both tonight people homeless, cruel, callous, I don't know. I'll never forgive him for doing
1: that. Ever, and I can see you're upset now, and and I feel it inside myself as well, and and that this trauma that you've gone through, that so many people are going through, that this government,
3: yeah,
1: has voted. It's
3: categorically what they're going to do to people. It's it is nothing short, but and. Anybody out there who knows anyone, a family member, a friend or anything who's gone to be made homeless, who going gone into emergency accommodation, you've got to stand and walk the journey with them. You've got to make sure that they eat properly, that they're being minded properly, that you give them space to sit in front of the TV for a couple of hours. Don't wait for that person to contact you because they won't. And don't hide and don't pretend it's not happening.
1: Yeah. And yeah, I can see you're you're upset there now. Um, thank you so much for, for sharing your story and and it's so so important that people hear this. Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry that you had to. And um, I just
3: felt that I had to. I had to share this. And um, I don't know what people think emergency accommodation or living in a hotel is like. But I did. I remember putting a Facebook post up at the time one of the days that it was like, take all your family and live in your bedroom for a week, close off your kitchen. You've no access to your kitchen, nothing put all your belongings into one room for a week and see what that's like and have like the county council and whatnot on your back the whole time to find somewhere to live it was as if it felt as if you weren't looking for somewhere to live
1: and I've heard that before and spoken to people you know families, parents and homelessness before who talk about that that the council, oh, makes it you feel like as if it's your fault.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: Rather than ex- accepting responsibility themselves to ensure people have a home.
3: Absolutely. And they just need to build houses, don't they?
2: <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. I get rid of the Airbnb. Like seriously, yeah. There's so many houses on Airbnb. Full houses shouldn't be there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, listen, Anya, thank you so much for taking your time and sharing your story. It was really, really um, heartbreaking, and I hope and I know it will uh, our listeners and many others, you know, who they talk to, and will explain that this is the reality of of living in emergency accommodation. Yes. It's not an alternative or somehow acceptable response.
3: No, it's it's really not. And I know we were very lucky with where we got that the hotel we were in. I couldn't have said any more about the staff there and how they really tried to treat us well. Yeah. But that wasn't that wasn't the issue. It was it was the authorities and the the carelessness of them and they, they just made you feel just so bad and worthless of all time. It was awful.
1: Yeah. Well, listen thanks for coming on and um we will uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again yeah absolutely
0: let's keep on working to change this yeah thanks anya all right thanks roy and that's where we leave it now folks thanks for listening thanks for sharing liking subscribing reviewing but please join us uh patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack the link is in the podcast you're listening to right now it helps us keep the mics on and bringing you conversations like the one you just heard there um thanks to Enya for her time again really appreciate it um take care of yourselves bye-bye